powered by Clear Vision Development Group. This is Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast. Each week, we'll provide you with top business insights, fresh perspectives from world-class guests, and the tools you need to lead better than before. And now, here's your host, author and business coach, Tony Richards. Welcome to the program where we are not nearly as much fun as the Nintendo Game Museum. Today on the program, my guest is Rick Maurer. Rick is one of the most interesting change initiative coaches and consultants that I know, and he's coming up as my guest on today's program. I'm also going to focus on how your belief system affects your goal-setting process. That's all coming up today on Better Than Before, sponsored by University Subaru. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. Stand by, Rick Maurer is coming up next. There's nothing quite like the love of a good dog. At University Subaru, it seems to us they're all good. See special pet-friendly features in the new 2021 Subaru Outback and Forester. It's never been easier to hit the open road with your best friend and to keep them safe with Subaru all-wheel drive. Subaru is dog-tested and dog-approved. Love. It's what makes a Subaru a Subaru and a dog a dog. University Subaru, Columbia, homegrown and proud of it. Are you working twice as hard but enjoying fewer rewards? Maybe you're highly accomplished but you just can't seem to break through and make the next big move. Or you run a business that has begun to grow stagnant. It doesn't have to stay that way. Even the best leaders have felt as if their careers were spiraling out of control. But that's when they had to lead and lead big. Tony Richards' new book, The Big Idea, 52 Ways to Be a Better Leader Now, will help launch you forward in leadership. Learn how to take charge and lead yourself, lead others, and lead your company. Purchase online today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and our website, clearvisiondevelopment.com. Welcome back to Better Than Before. Today, my special guest is Rick Maurer, and he provides leaders who want to lead change the expertise to help them identify even deeply hidden resistance and turn that opposition into support. Rick's support to leading change is unique. He focuses on two fundamental questions. Why do people support us and why do people resist us or our ideas? Understanding resistance is key to turning skepticism and opposition into support for new initiatives. If leaders understand resistance, they can often avoid it before it occurs or get things back on track when a change is about to derail. Rick works closely with clients to develop change strategies that will work in their unique organizations. Some of the clients he's worked with include Lockheed Martin, Deloitte, National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, Verizon, Charles Schwab, the Washington Post, NASA, Tulane University Hospital, and many government agencies in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Europe, and Russia. With an approach that is practical as well as easy to learn and apply, Rick can help business leaders around the world build strong support, energy, and forward momentum for their ideas and plans. His latest book, Seizing Moments of Possibility, Ways to Trigger Energy and Forward Momentum for Your Ideas and Plans, 
is available this year. And we're going to talk about how you can get your very own copy coming up in just a few minutes. But first, let me welcome Rick Maurer to the program. Rick, glad you could join us today. So am I. It's good to be here, Tony. You bet, man. I appreciate you. I know you're a busy guy, and I appreciate you taking a few minutes out to visit with us. And it's a fascinating topic that paralyzes leaders when they they know they need to make change and they just get overwhelmed with it before they even start because the mindset is, holy cow, this is going to be hard. Yep. How did you get going in this consulting world and how did you select change as a specialty? Well, in some ways it selected me. I was in graduate school. I was going to work with emotionally disturbed kids in schools and I didn't realize it at the time, but the program I was enrolled in was a radical program. And they said, a lot of times, it's not the kids who are disturbed, it's the schools that are disturbed. And if you can change schools, you're going to have fewer kids acting crazy. And I bought that philosophy then. I still buy it, as a matter of fact. But I found that when I got my first job, I mean, I had not had a real job. I'd worked in the army some, but I go into a school. So I'm a young guy. All these teachers had 20, 30 years experience, and I'm saying, hi, I'm here to help. And they would go, well, that's nice, young man. You go sit right over there, and the moment we need help. We'll point to you. That's right. (laughs) That's right. And I would have these ideas that I, of course, thought were brilliant, and nobody would listen. And I couldn't figure that out. And a few years later, I ended up studying to go into organization development, which is a type of consulting that focuses on people. And- After I worked there a while, a lot of my clients were facing big changes, and they kept saying, we keep getting resistance to change, resistance. And anything I could read in the business press, I didn't think was, frankly, very good. The verb that often got attached to resistance to change in the business press was overcome. We've got to overcome it. Uh Now, I realize why that sounds tempting. The problem is when somebody tries to make you do anything, the tendency is for you to put up a wall. So consequently, we create our own resistance. So I kept studying and studying. And I finally, through a lot of different avenues, came up with my own model of resistance, which really respects the fact that people resist for good reason. And it's in our best interest to figure out why, and then how can we work with them to turn that resistance into support? And it's not really a touchy-feely kind of thing. It's just, it's a mindset. And so- That's a long-winded story, but your story reminds me, I was just talking to a friend of mine this morning and he's trying to get this idea into future customers' minds and he's frustrated and he can't quite get them to understand. I said, well, you know, Jim, one of the qualifications of being a visionary is you're the only one that sees it, right? And you got to help other people see it. So your story about teachers going, you just sit over there and we'll nod at you when we, I mean, they obviously didn't see how you were going to be able to help, right? Right. Yeah. Now, one of the things that fascinates me about the way you approach things, and I got to get this from your book, which I haven't had a chance to read yet, but I'm looking forward to reading it, is your concepts of how energy plays into all this. Yeah. I've never really heard anybody else really approach change initiatives from an energy standpoint, (laughs) right? But I'm fascinated. One of the reasons I want to talk to you today, I want to hear all about it. I, I'm glad you picked that up. For years and years, in the books that I had written, I would talk about support and resistance. And together, I was doing some work at a scientific lab. These were a lot of people who were like nuclear physicists. These were very bright people. And they were using 
my models. And so I was there one day and they're arguing over, well, is it here or is it there on this cycle that I had? Is support here? Is it blah, blah, blah? And I said, folks, just stop. It's just energy. It's either moving this way or it's moving that way. And this one nuclear physicist said, oh, I like that. We understand energy here. And then the whole meeting turned around. The next week, I was working with a new client, and the planning group is saying, oh, but we got this one stakeholder, and oh, it's going to be resistance and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh, and they had a whiteboard. And I said, do you mind if I use the whiteboard? And I drew a big horizontal line. And on one end, I put support. And then the other, I put resistance. And I said, okay, how much support are you going to need? And they said, oh, I had no words on there other than support and resistance. And they said, oh, way up here. And I said, what kind of support are you likely to get? And they said, oh, it's going to be resistance. It's going to be way over there. And just that and seeing that gap between what they want and what they were getting helped them frame the conversation. Some more people came into the meeting and one of my clients leaned over and he said, hey, would you mind if I taught him that energy bar? I had no name for it. It was a line on a board. Uh, and they <laughs> and helped you name it. They helped me name it and they taught it with only hearing me talk about it for five minutes. Oh, wow. And I realized, for one thing, I mean, I had been thinking of it as energy, but I hadn't so explicitly said, look, that's really what it is. And it's always there. It's either working for you or against you. That's fascinating. Hearing you talk about that, I think it's just a natural tendency for human beings to want to try to locate themselves right off the mm. bat. It's like, we need to find out where we are, right? Yes. You walk into a high school reunion and they all go up to the class picture. And the first person they look for is themselves. <laughs> That's absolutely right. So they're trying to locate themselves and it really wasn't about them. It was really about where the energy is, if I understand you right. Yes, that's absolutely right. So tell me a little bit about once you locate where the energy is on this bar, what are the implications of that? Like where you find it at different places, the energy, what does it mean one way or the other? Well, what it means is let's say you and I are working together and we realize that there's this group we need to influence and we really need them to be very strong champions for this. They really are going to have to go to bath. They're going to have to make sure we get budget. So we'd say, okay, we need a lot from those people. Whereas another group, maybe all we need is them to be willing to do something. Hey, could we come into your staff meeting next week and take a half hour to talk about, oh yeah, sure. That's the difference between a first date and actually getting married. You have to figure out how much energy do you really need? Or maybe for some people, all we need is for them to be interested. We may want something later on, but we just want them to be on our side. Then we say, okay, that's what I need. What are we likely to get? And what we might get is indifference. They're not against us. They just don't think what we're talking about has any relevance. Or they might grumble like, oh, they're, yeah, that's Tony and Rick for you. Yeah, there they go. They just read a book, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> or it could be out and out in your face resistance. So what's critical, if I want to influence those people, I've got to know what I'm looking for. And I've got to know how big is the gap between what I need and what I'm getting. And that work in the gap is what we need to do. And what I've identified in my approach to resistance is basically three levels. It's, I don't get it. I don't like it. I don't like you. And so when I'm looking at that group, I say, okay, did they understand what we're talking about or not? What's their reaction? Are they afraid? Like I could lose my job, whatever. Or are they excited? And the third one, I don't like you. What that really means is I don't have trust and confidence in you. So they might look at me and say, we like Rick, 
but man, he's a basket case. He never follows through on things. And so the combination of the, I don't get it. I don't like it. I don't like you. That's what I've got to be working with. So if they don't trust me, I've really got to start right there because no matter what I say, whether it's the most brilliant idea in the world, they're not going to listen because they don't trust me because they think I'm a goofball or whatever. One of the reasons I'm excited to read your book is, and I just had this happen not long ago, and I didn't really have language to describe it, but some clients, I work with CEOs and their exec teams, and there are times where I will walk in to do these day-long meetings where we're going to set the agenda for the quarter or something like that. And there are times where I get out of those meetings and I go home and I'm asking myself, wow, that meeting was dead. Like what? And I'm sitting there racking my brain going, what could I have done yes, yeah. to inject more life into that thing? Cause everybody was just lethargic and it just seemed like <laughs> the conversations were just lull and boring. Yeah. And so I know you've got thoughts about that. <laughs> I, so here's yeah. my question. Can you help me, Rick? Can you help me? <laughs> <laughs> No, I can't. Anything else you have? <laughs> no, I've yeah. got other notes here, but it's, yeah. <laughs> it's really funny. I kept wanting to interrupt and say, oh, you're that guy in that meeting. It's well, I can see it. I can see yeah. it and I can identify it, but I'm not quite sure what to do about it. Well, the first thing is, and what I'm actually recommending in the book, by the way, I'm not going to be hawking the book. The book is free, but the idea of how do we begin to tweak to make minor changes in the meeting to try to add more life? So if I'm leading the meeting or even a portion of the meeting, I can say these are always deadly. And then I need to say, what could we do to make tiny changes that might have an impact? I'll give you one example. A guy named Ted Castle is the owner and CEO of a company called Rhino Foods. They make dessert ingredients. So they sell to Ben and Jerry's and other manufacturers. And they have a small company. It's about 90 people. And he called everybody together and he said, this whole industry is in a downturn and I've done everything I possibly know how to do to cut costs. And we're going to go under if we don't do something else. And the only other thing I can think to do is to downsize. Mm -hmm. Now, when I've been in meetings, when leaders have said that, that's what they say. And then they say, okay, here's when it's going to start. And then they get off the stage as quick as they can. So he did what he had to do. And he said, but look, I don't want to have to downsize. I just don't see any alternatives. But if any of you have any ideas that might help us either increase revenue or decrease costs, I'm willing to at least consider them. I can't make a promise. I'm willing to consider. So 90 people, he got 111 suggestions. Wow. Just by adding that 30 seconds of, hey, you got any ideas? It's that kind of simplicity. You don't have to bring a circus tent in and do all kinds of big things. It's sometimes that you ask a question and then you leave space for the answers. Can I give you one other example? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Okay. I have a client and he works in a technical organization. And he said, if I'm trying to influence other people around me, I have to use slides. You have to use PowerPoint or it looks like you're not prepared. And he knew that having a lot of slides actually got in the way because people tune out. Mm -hmm. And so he called me one day and he said, I got this great idea. And he said, normally for a presentation where I'm trying to get all the other engineers and scientists on board, I might use 50 slides. And I thought, what's the minimum number of slides I could do? And he said, I got it down to five. 
So here's the group. It's the same group that met every month, let's say, the same room, the same bad coffee. All he changed is he had fewer slides. And he said, the amazing thing is I covered all the same material, but because there was so much space, people felt freer to jump in. And he said, we had this great conversation, which would never have happened if I was just trying to get through 50 slides. Yeah. So it's that kind of stuff that it's not rocket science. It's nothing touchy feely. It's just like, oh, we're opening things up. And going back to your CEO who asked for the ideas and the input. That's probably the best thing he could have done because everyone that he's talking to knows their part of the company infinitely better than he would. So they got ideas, but no one maybe ever asked before, I guess. Yeah, I don't know the history. What I know about him is he seems to be a really good guy. But I think your point is really very, very good that if you and I work in this one small department, we go, you know, this might work. Yeah. And that because he's looking at a bigger picture, he may miss those very things. Well, you just wouldn't know. There's no way to know <laughs> where these people that come in there every single day know 10 things they could do to increase effectiveness or efficiency or whatever. I had just thought of one other thing. This is a guy named Jack Stack, who's written some books on open yeah. book management. I know Jack. He's down in Springfield here. Oh, cool. Too far from here. Yeah. Super. Well, I don't know him, but I've worked with one of the people who work with him, but his book, his first book is an international harvester. They had a contract with the Soviet Union and they negotiated a contract where if they didn't sell something like 800 tractors by October 1st, they were going to lose a bundle. And the executives are meeting and they find it's August and they're saying, man, we're going to take a bath on this. And Jack Stack said, we got to tell the troops. And the other executives said, no, 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 you can't do that. He said, why? He said, because you'll depress them. And he said, you got to promise you won't say a word. And he goes, okay. So what he did is he took a big sheet of paper and wrote up, I forget the exact numbers, but something like 525 built, 275 to go, if my math is right. Mm -hmm. And people would come by and go, what's that? Man, we're not going to make it, are we? And people started talking. And the reason there was a delay, why they're having a problem, is there's this one little gadget that they would get through procurement and it would take forever and there were delays. And somebody said, you can buy that. It's Ace Hardware. And the executives didn't know. They don't go hang out at Home Depot and Ace yeah. Hardware on weekends. So the employees would start going down to the local hardware stores and buying it. And by the deadline, instead of 800, I think they built 805 that passed. Right. Yeah. I love that story. And it really is to your point, Tony, that they know it much better than anybody else. If you just listen to them. Yeah. Jack Stack, the great game of business. Yes. Yeah. He's just down the road in Springfield, Missouri here. Great guy. We've talked about this, how to add life or whatever into a meeting or a, let's say a, more of a tactical, but how do you get it into a long-term strategy plan or how do you keep that momentum going? What I've identified is that in whatever the project is where you're going to need support for other people, there are like four big pockets of energy that if you pay attention to them, they can really be a catalyst for you. If you don't pay attention, they can be a catalyst against you. So you need to be looking at those little moments of possibility all the way through. And the first of those is, I'm just going to talk in terms of energy, is people need to feel a sense of urgency. So you're thinking about some change in the organization and you look at the people who need to support this. Do they feel like this is critically important? We better do this. If not, 
you're entering it with people going, okay, I got another meeting to go to, like the one you were describing. So the first one is energy. The second one, which we typically would think of as planning meeting, the energy I'm looking at is anticipation. People are going, oh man, am I glad we're sitting down working on this. And so you can just look around and that meeting you were talking about, you could look around the room and you don't see anticipation or other than anticipation. Oh, only 15 minutes left. That kind of anticipation. Agenda item number six. (laughs) That's it. So that's the second one. The third one is what we would generally think of as implementation where you're building the thing. Yeah. And the energy that I think we ought to look for is mastery that the people doing that work are treating it as if they're a professional athlete or a professional musician where no detail is too small to pay attention to, to get it right. And if you look at how some of the great golfers work, they'll take a ball and put it in a sand trap and hit it, put a ball in a sand trap and hit it. And that might happen two or three times in the whole tour, but they got it. Right. Whereas I'm not a golfer, but I might go out and go, oh, it's close enough and go on to the next thing. So that's the third. The fourth one, which really pocket of energy, which doesn't get talked about very much, sadly, is are we getting the results we want from all that work? Sometimes we just measure, well, we came in on time, on budget, everybody got the training, everybody got the bugs out of the software, but was it worth it? And the energy you're looking for there is resolve. So what I would do is, first of all, I'd take a look at the plan that you got. I don't suggest you get a new plan. Take a look at your plan. It's probably pretty good. But every plan ought to come with a little sticker on back that says, warning, batteries not included. And say, as I read through the plan, can I feel the energy? And if I'm reading it and I'm tuning out as I'm reading through the plan, that may be a signal that you're going to be putting people into some pretty boring stuff. And you already have ownership in it and you're feeling that way. Yes, exactly right. And once you start to pick that up, if you see where it drops off, then you can go, okay, why did it drop off? What can we do differently this time? I'll give you one example. I created this map, which obviously I can't show people, but just imagine that at the beginning with urgency, energy for all the stakeholders goes up pretty high. People say, wow, we got to do something. And one thing that will happen in an organization, I call it the big bang approach to change. There'll be this huge spike in energy. There'll be a big planning meeting and people will come up with great ideas. People walk out. A friend of mine said, it was like I was walking on air. It was so exciting. And that's great, but now you got to hang on to it. But in a lot of organizations, what makes it big bang is nothing happens. And a week goes by and a month goes by and two months later, they say, we're having a follow-up and people go, a follow-up to what? So one of the things you look at is, okay, our pattern is to do these big events that kick up, but we don't follow through with the little detail things. And so often I call these common errors or unforced errors when a client or anybody can starts to say, oh, that's our pattern. Quite often I'll say, so what could you have done? And they almost always say, oh, here's what we could have done. That they don't need some secret formula from a consultant like me. All you need to do is stop and look at it and say, oh. No wonder people, that sort of thing. Well, everybody gets excited about the wedding, but (laughs) but hardly anybody focuses on being married. Everyone gets excited about the pregnancy, but no one focuses on parenting. I don't know if it's just wired into us as humans where we're event oriented, like you said. 
Well, I haven't used the notion of the wedding, but I've been thinking about using it because there's all this attention. There's an urgency like, wow, we got to do it. We got to do it in the spring because blah, 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 blah. And we're going to do it here. And there's going to be energy everywhere. Energy. Exactly. And then (laughs) the wedding takes place and boom, that's it. And we somehow assume that all that energy that went into that is going to lead to a great successful marriage. And I don't think the statistics bear that out. So you said it best batteries, not included. (laughs) So are there ways where you covered a lot of this, but I'm just curious if there are just some real simple, quick answers. Are there ways to insert those batteries in over time? Oh yeah. 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 First of all, unless you're doing it already, I just recommend starting really small and the smallest place, but also can be the most helpful comes from the great worldly philosopher and baseball player, Yogi Berra. And he said, (laughs) you can observe a lot just by watching. Right. And if you watch and the way Yogi Berra watched, he wasn't just watching the pitcher and he was calling signs for him. He's looking at that entire field. He'll notice the shortstop has just moved. He's aware of stuff. And in fact, there's a guy named, I may mispronounce it, Tachi Ono, who's one of the people responsible for the Toyota production line. And there's a thing called the Ono Circle, where you go and you stand in a little work area and you just watch. Now, he would do it for hours and then he'd come by and he'd start to quiz you. And if you didn't do good, he said, all right, Tony, I want you to stand there for another couple hours. But a key thing to do is to observe. So that meeting that we started off with, you're talking about, if you're a participant, just go in and observe what's going on and don't do anything quite yet. And just that paying attention can make a difference. And then if you have the opportunity, say, well, what if I used fewer slides? What if I just added an invitation? Like, if you have any ideas, please come to me. If you start too big, then suddenly it's going to get really uncomfortable for you. So you've got to stay, I hate to say comfort zone, but you've got to stay where you feel like, yeah, that you're not 50 feet above the big top yet. I know at one point I played around with just increasing my font, increase my font to like 30, which would limit the amount I could actually put in the slide. Cause I'm going to have to fill in the rest. And if I'm just going to read the slide, well, anybody could do that. Right. Yeah. So I would take my font up to this big font where it's like, I can only get 15 words in here. First of all, that's just such a perfect example. It's really simple. It didn't cost you more money. You didn't have to hire this consultant to come in and say, hey, you know, Tony, not, you could not, use. Not that we're against that, by the way. <laughs> no, that's true. Oh, no, 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 we're not. Yeah, I don't know if your listeners know I'm a consultant. But just stepping back and say, oh, what if I increased the font? And I love the idea of what if I did that? And you try it out. Yeah. And you see, oh, wow, that made a difference or it didn't. But it's not costing you anything to start tweaking. And as you do that, then it starts to become a habit and you start to do more and more of that. I was sitting there thinking on the guy who reduced his presentation. I thought, I bet he got it down to 10 and I was just amazed. He got it to five. That I was too. That's awesome. Yeah. We're visiting with Rick Maurer. We're talking about how to put life and energy into change. And we're going to tell you about how to get Rick's book here in just a second. But I ask these 12 questions to every guest that comes on our show and Rick, if you're ready, I'm going to shoot these to you and see what you come up with. Okay. All right. Here's number one. What's the best memory that immediately comes to mind for you? Hiking alone across the Grand Canyon. Oh, man. That's great. I love the Grand Canyon. I do too. Who's the number one hero in your life? Louis Armstrong. Oh, Satchmo. 
Sashmo. Yeah. What? I got his autograph here. Oh, wow. Top value you subscribe to. Top value. Wow. Integrity. Who's the most important person in your life? Oh, my wife, Kathy. Kathy. What's your favorite thing in the whole wide world? Playing jazz. Man, we got a lot in common. <laughs> I love classic jazz. What is your favorite food? Deep dish pizza. Most beautiful place you've ever been to. There's a canyon in Iceland. We were hiking and the guide just took us off the road. There were no other people around. And there's this gorgeous canyon. It's one of the most beautiful. I don't think it has a name. There was no, this, no, this is a tourist destination. We're off on a dirt road and it, part of it was a beauty. And part of it is, it was just such a surprise. And that's I, awesome. If you could describe success in one word, what would the word be? Fulfillment. How do you want to be remembered? As a good guy. If you could go back and talk to a much younger Rick, what kind of advice would you have for him? <laughs> How much time you got? <laughs> I would say Rick. Young Rick, don't go into something where you're saying, I just don't think this is going to be any fun or enriching or anything. Don't take one more step, right? Yep. All right. So this is going to be interesting for a jazz aficionado. What's your favorite sound? Oh, wow. Actually, my favorite sound is Louis Armstrong's trumpet solos. One of the greatest Americans of all time. Of all the lessons you've learned in life, what's the best lesson you've learned? I was going to joke, buy low, sell high. I think the lesson was, huh, can I just say a couple sentences? With yeah, it? go ahead. A number of years ago, I had decided I really wanted to learn to write plays, and I was working on one. And my dad, who always thought I was doing kind of wackadoodle kind of stuff because he, he had a small business in that. And I was home visiting, and Kathy and my mom had gone up to bed. And I said, Dad, I'd like your advice. I never asked my dad for advice because we tended not to agree on that stuff. And I said, I'm working on a play, and I think I have a chance to get it produced I don't know if I'm any good at it or not, but the only way I can tell is if I actually work on it. So I really am asking you, dad, what advice do you have for me? And he said, well, he said, when I wanted to start my own furniture store, I couldn't get a loan from the local bank. This is a small town. He said, people would say, Eddie, you have the most secure job in town. The company you work for has been there a hundred years. And he said, I said to the banker, well, you know, I had a job that was even more secure. I was in the army. They even gave me my underwear. Oh, wow. And he said, so you got to do it. You don't want to look back and go, God, I wonder. And so getting that affirmation from him, but I just love the image that gave me my underwear yeah. has been a real helpful kind of thing for me. Have no regrets. Yep. Rick Maurer has been our guest. He works with leaders and their teams who want to create successful change without all the headaches by applying life and energy. So tell everybody the title of your book and how to get it, Rick. The title of the book is Seizing Moments of Possibility ways to trigger energy and forward momentum on your ideas and plans. And the only way to get it, it's free as an ebook, is on my website. And it's www.rickmauer, and Maurer is M-A-U-R-E-R, rickmauer.com. And on the homepage, down in the right-hand corner, you'll see a link. And you just put in your first name, your email address, and the book will appear. So it's no big sales funnel, none of that stuff. It's a book. And I really, I'm serious about wanting to keep the e version of it free for people. Okay, so. good. I can't wait. I'm going to go get it. I appreciate you spending this time with us. I've been looking forward to the conversation and it was fabulous. So thank you so much. You're welcome. I loved it. This was just a treat for me.
All right. Rick Maurer, everybody. I'll have a business and leadership lesson coming up next on Better Than Before. There's nothing quite like the love of a good dog. At University Subaru, it seems to us they're all good. See special pet-friendly features in the new 2021 Subaru Outback and Forester. It's never been easier to hit the open road with your best friend and to keep them safe with Subaru all-wheel drive. Subaru is dog-tested and dog-approved. Love, it's what makes a Subaru a Subaru and a dog a dog. University Subaru, Columbia, homegrown and proud of it. Receive weekly coaching tips from Tony Richards, delivered straight to your inbox. Whether you're a CEO or an entrepreneur, Tony can help you reach your goals and give you a competitive edge within your industry. Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo covers topics ranging from leadership development to teamwork to company culture and more. Text the word leadership to 38470 to sign up for Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo or sign up online at clearvisiondevelopment.com. Welcome back to Better Than Before. This is Tony Richards. And today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how your belief system affects your goal setting. The philosopher Anton Chekhov gave us the principle that mankind is what he or she believes they are. Our beliefs deliver direct commands to our nervous system. If our beliefs deliver power forces of positivity to our system, then there are tremendous forces of good things in our lives. On the other hand, if our beliefs head more in a negative direction or a limited direction, these thoughts and actions can be devastating. Just understanding this concept, can you see how this would affect your goals when you're sitting down and trying to figure out what it is that you want to accomplish and the corresponding actions that you need on your behalf to achieve those goals? Beliefs are kind of like a compass for direction and maps for understanding the territory we cover. They give us either the certainty we will achieve or the certainty we will fail. If our beliefs are taking us in the wrong direction and into the wrong areas of achievement, then we are doomed before we even start. Beliefs can really empower you or disempower you and sabotage all your plans. What often counts the most is not the quality of the situation, but rather our belief about the situation. Our brains simply direct us to actions based on what it is that we are telling ourselves about the situation through our beliefs. We've all heard of the placebo effect, right? The pill that could actually contain no medicine value. But if we believe it does, our body responds to our beliefs, not the reality of the efficacy of the pill. Our beliefs are our states of certainty which govern our behavior. The great thing about beliefs is that they're a result of your own personal choice. We all decide what our beliefs are going to be. And we can also change our beliefs or exchange our beliefs in a matter of moments. I have, in workshops, seen people change what they believe in a quick moment of time. I've also seen people refuse to change what they believe with overwhelming evidence to the contrary to what they actually believe. No matter what the evidence was that was presented to them, they still refuse to change what they believe. Now, they could have changed it, but they refused. This can be because they were not convinced, or it could be because they were convinced, but their ego and their pride would just not allow them to change their belief system. 
This plays out right in front of us as leaders every single day. And this not only affects the goal setting process, that's what I'm talking about today, but it also affects the execution of the goal plan. You will not execute something with precision and excellence if your beliefs do not line up with the desired outcome. Where our beliefs originate or come from is a mystery sometimes, but here are a few examples of the sources for beliefs. Number one, they could come from environment. This is probably the single most potent generator of beliefs. There are examples and examples and examples of people who have overcome their environment, and these are the hero stories we gravitate toward. Unfortunately, they are few and far between. Number two, events. There are positive, neutral, and negative events that happen in our lives almost daily, which create experiences that shape our belief system. A recently divorced female may believe that there are no good men out there or that she will never marry again right after a divorce. A patient who contracts a disease may form the belief that they will not make it, and others may decide to believe they will overcome it and win. Number three, knowledge. Sometimes limited knowledge can limit our belief system because we just aren't informed. On the other hand, revealed knowledge to us can cause us to count the information as valid and we'll buy into what we've learned and we'll actually modify our beliefs. And number four is past outcomes. Sometimes we have achieved something positive once and we begin to think that we can produce that same positive result every single time. On the other hand, if we failed once, we may begin to limit our beliefs on what we can achieve from that one past outcome and think that's the way it's going to be every time we try. These are paramount when doing your strategic thinking around your goals for the year, for the quarter, for the week, or for the day. Can you see now how beliefs shape your thinking and therefore why and how you set your goals can be affected by your beliefs? The belief that generates the thought, someone like me can never achieve blank will sabotage your ability to accomplish that singular goal. The belief that generates the thought, why not me? Other people have done it. I can do it too. Will push, energize, and empower you to accomplish that same goal. The failure belief system will breed failure, and the success belief system will breed success. So the bottom line is this. When you're doing your goal-setting process, take some time to examine your beliefs. What is it that you actually believe about what you're trying to accomplish? Some people actually write down and summarize their belief system and their own personal philosophy. This is called a manifesto. Search the internet for some manifestos and read over them, and you'll see the power of the writer's belief system in that. So the key question you need to ask yourself is, what does my belief system look like and sound like, and does it support the goals that I am setting for myself? That's our show today. Better Than Before is sponsored by the folks at University Subaru. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. You can follow me on Twitter at Tony Richards 4 and come over to our Facebook page, Tony Richards, speaker, author, coach. We'd love to have you join us. It's absolutely free. Special thanks, as always, to my number one producer, Tessa Hall. And until we visit again next week, I'm your host, Tony Richards, reminding you that everything gets better when you get better. Thank you for listening to Better Than Before with Tony Richards. 
a business leaders podcast powered by Clear Vision Development Group. For more resources from Tony, visit clearvisiondevelopment.com. Join us next time for another episode of Better Than Before with Tony Richards. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.